By remaining awake and blocking access to the adenosine drain that sleep opens up, the brain is unable to rid itself of the chemical sleep pressure. The mounting adenosine levels continue to rise. This should mean that the longer you are awake, the sleepier you feel. But that's not true. Though you will feel increasingly sleepy throughout the nighttime phase, hitting a low point in your alertness around 5 to 6 a.m., thereafter, you'll catch a second wind. How is this possible when adenosine levels and corresponding sleep pressure continue to increase? The answer resides with your 24-hour circadian rhythm, which offers a brief period of salvation from sleepiness. Unlike sleep pressure, your circadian rhythm pays no attention to whether you are asleep or awake. Its slow rhythmic countenance continues to fall and rise, strictly on the basis of what time of night or day it is. No matter what state of adenosine sleepiness pressure exists within the brain, the 24-hour circadian rhythm cycles on as per usual, oblivious to your ongoing lack of sleep. If you look at figure 7 in the PDF once again, the graveyard shift misery you experience around 6am can be explained by the combination of high adenosine sleep pressure and your circadian rhythm reaching its lowest point. The vertical distance separating these two lines at 3am is large, indicated by the first vertical arrow in the figure. But if you can make it past this alertness low point, you're in for a rally. The morning rise of the circadian rhythm comes to your rescue, marshalling an alerting boost throughout the morning that temporarily offsets the rising levels of adenosine sleep pressure. As your circadian rhythm hits its peak around 11am, the vertical distance between the two respective lines in figure 7 has been decreased. The upshot is that you will feel much less sleepy at 11am than you did at 3am, despite being awake for longer. Sadly, this second wind doesn't last. As the afternoon lumbers on, the circadian rhythm begins to decline as the escalating adenosine piles on the sleep pressure. Come late afternoon and early evening, any temporary alertness boost has been lost. You are hit by the full force of an immense adenosine sleep pressure. By 9pm, there exists a towering vertical distance between the two lines in figure 7. Short of intravenous caffeine or amphetamine, sleep will have its way, wrestling your brain from the now weak grip of blurry wakefulness, blanketing you in slumber. Am I getting enough sleep? Setting aside the extreme case of sleep deprivation, how do you know whether you're routinely getting enough sleep? While a clinical sleep assessment is needed to thoroughly address this issue, an easy rule of thumb is to answer two simple questions. First, after waking up in the morning, could you fall back asleep at 10 or 11 a.m.? If the answer is yes, you are likely not getting sufficient sleep quantity and or quality. Second, can you function optimally without caffeine before noon? If the answer is no, then you are most likely self-medicating your state of chronic sleep deprivation. Both of these signs you should take seriously and seek to address your sleep deficiency. They are topics and a question that we will cover in depth in chapters 13 and 14 when we speak about the factors that prevent and harm your sleep, as well as insomnia and effective treatments. In general, 
these unrefreshed feelings that compel a person to fall back asleep mid-morning or require the boosting of alertness with caffeine are usually due to individuals not giving themselves adequate sleep opportunity time, at least eight or nine hours in bed. When you don't get enough sleep, one consequence among many is that adenosine concentrations remain too high. Like an outstanding debt on a loan, come the morning, some quantity of yesterday's adenosine remains. You then carry that outstanding sleepiness balance throughout the following day. Also, like a loan in arrears, this sleep debt will continue to accumulate. You cannot hide from it. The debt will roll over into the next payment cycle, and the next, and the next, producing a condition of prolonged, chronic sleep deprivation from one day to another. This outstanding sleep obligation results in a feeling of chronic fatigue, manifesting in many forms of mental and physical ailments that are now rife throughout industrialized nations. Other questions that can draw out signs of insufficient sleep are, if you didn't set an alarm clock, would you sleep past that time? If so, you need more sleep than you are giving yourself. Do you find yourself at your computer screen reading and then rereading, and perhaps rereading again, the same sentence? This is often a sign of a fatigued, underslept brain. Do you sometimes forget what colour the last few traffic lights were while driving? Simple distraction is often the cause, but a lack of sleep is very much another culprit. Of course, even if you are giving yourself plenty of time to get a full night of shut-eye, next-day fatigue and sleepiness can still occur because you are suffering from an undiagnosed sleep disorder, of which there are now more than a hundred. The most common is insomnia followed by sleep-disordered breathing, or sleep apnea, which includes heavy snoring. Should you suspect your sleep or that of anyone else to be disordered, resulting in daytime fatigue, impairment, or distress, speak to your doctor immediately and seek a referral to a sleep specialist. Most important in this regard, do not seek sleeping pills as your first option. You will realize why I say this come chapter 14. But please feel free to skip right to the section on sleeping pills in that chapter if you are a current user, or considering using sleeping pills in the immediate future. Chapter 3 Defining and Generating Sleep Time Dilation and What We Learned from a Baby in 1952 Perhaps you walked into your living room late one night while chatting with a friend. You saw a family member, let's call her Jessica, lying still on the couch, not making a peep, body recumbent and head lolling to one side. Immediately you turned to your friend and said, Shh, Jessica's sleeping. But how did you know? It took a split second of time, yet there was little doubt in your mind about Jessica's state. Why, instead, did you not think Jessica was in a coma, or worse, dead? Self-Identifying Sleep Your lightning-quick judgment of Jessica being asleep was likely correct, and perhaps you accidentally confirmed it by knocking something over and waking her up. Over time, we have all become incredibly good at recognizing a number of signals that suggest that another individual is asleep. So reliable are these signs that there now exists a set of observable features that scientists agree 
indicate the presence of sleep in humans and other species. The Jessica vignette illustrates nearly all of these clues. First, sleeping organisms adopt a stereotypical position. In land animals, this is often horizontal, as was Jessica's position on the couch. Second, and related, sleeping organisms have lowered muscle tone. This is most evident in the relaxation of postural, anti-gravity, skeletal muscles. Those that keep you upright, preventing you from collapsing to the floor. As these muscles ease their tension in light and then deep sleep, the body will slouch down. A sleeping organism will be draped over whatever supports it underneath, most evident in Jessica's listing head position. Third, sleeping individuals show no overt displays of communication or responsivity. Jessica showed no signs of orienting to you as you entered the room, as she would have when awake. The fourth defining feature of sleep is that it's easily reversible, differentiating it from coma, anesthesia, hibernation, and death. Recall that upon knocking the item over in the room, Jessica awoke. Fifth, as we established in the previous chapter, sleep adheres to a reliable timed pattern across 24 hours, instructed by the circadian rhythm coming from the brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus pacemaker. Humans are diurnal, so we have a preference for being awake throughout the day and sleeping at night. Now let me ask you a rather different question. How do you, yourself, know that you have slept? You make this self-assessment even more frequently than that of sleep in others. Each morning, with luck, you return to the waking world knowing that you have been asleep. Footnote. Some people with a certain type of insomnia are not able to accurately gauge whether they have been asleep or awake at night. As a consequence of this sleep misperception, they underestimate how much slumber they have successfully obtained, a condition that we will return to later in the book. So sensitive is this self-assessment of sleep that you can go a step further, gauging when you've had good or bad quality sleep. This is another way of measuring sleep, a first-person phenomenological assessment distinct from signs that you use to determine sleep in another. Here also there are universal indicators that offer a convincing conclusion of sleep, too, in fact. First is the loss of external awareness. You stop perceiving the outside world. You are no longer conscious of all that surrounds you, at least not explicitly. In actual fact, your ears are still hearing. Your eyes, though closed, are still capable of seeing. This is similarly true for the other sensory organs of the nose, smell, the tongue, taste, and the skin, touch. All these signals still flood into the center of your brain, but it is here, in the sensory convergence zone, where that journey ends while you sleep. The signals are blocked by a perceptual barricade set up in a structure called the thalamus, a smooth, oval-shaped object just smaller than a lemon. The thalamus is the sensory gate of the brain. The thalamus decides which sensory signals are allowed through its gate, and which are not. Should they gain privileged passage, they are sent up to the cortex at the top of your brain, where they are consciously perceived. By locking its gates shut at the onset of healthy sleep, 
the thalamus imposes a sensory blackout in the brain, preventing onward travel of those signals up to the cortex. As a result, you are no longer consciously aware of the information broadcasts being transmitted from your outer sense organs. At this moment, your brain has lost waking contact with the outside world that surrounds you. Said another way, you are now asleep. The second feature that instructs your own, self-determined judgment of sleep, is a sense of time distortion experienced in two contradictory ways. At the most obvious level, you lose your conscious sense of time when you sleep, tantamount to a chronometric void. Consider the last time you fell asleep on an airplane. When you woke up, you probably checked a clock to see how long you had been asleep. Why? Because your explicit tracking of time was ostensibly lost while you slept. It is this feeling of a time cavity that, in waking retrospect, makes you confident you've been asleep. But while your conscious mapping of time is lost during sleep, at a non-conscious level, time continues to be catalogued by the brain with incredible precision. I'm sure you've had the experience of needing to wake up the next morning at a specific time. Perhaps you had to catch an early morning flight. Before bed, you diligently set your alarm for 6am. Miraculously, however, you woke up at 5.58am, unassisted, right before the alarm. Your brain, it seems, is still capable of logging time with quite remarkable precision while asleep. Like so many other operations occurring within the brain, you simply don't have explicit access to this accurate time knowledge during sleep. It all flies below the radar of consciousness, surfacing only when needed. One last temporal distortion deserves mention here, that of time dilation in dreams, beyond sleep itself. Time isn't quite time within dreams. It is most often elongated. Consider the last time you hit the snooze button on your alarm, having been woken from a dream. Mercifully, you are giving yourself another delicious five minutes of sleep. You go right back to dreaming. After the allotted five minutes, your alarm clock faithfully sounds again. Yet that's not what it felt like to you. During those five minutes of actual time, you may have felt like you were dreaming for an hour, perhaps more. Unlike the phase of sleep where you are not dreaming, wherein you lose all awareness of time, in dreams, you continue to have a sense of time. It's simply not particularly accurate. More often than not, dream time is stretched out and prolonged relative to real time. Although the reasons for such time dilation are not fully understood, recent experimental recordings of brain cells in rats give tantalizing clues. In the experiment, rats were allowed to run around a maze. As the rats learned the spatial layout, the researchers recorded signature patterns of brain cell firing. The scientists did not stop recording from these memory-imprinting cells when the rats subsequently fell asleep. They continued to eavesdrop on the brain during the different stages of slumber, including rapid eye movement, REM sleep, the stage in which humans principally dream. The first striking result was that the signature pattern of brain cell firing that occurred as the rats were learning the maze subsequently reappeared during sleep over and over again. That is, memories were being replayed at the level of brain cell activity as the rats snoozed.
The second, more striking finding was the speed of replay. During REM sleep, the memories were being replayed far more slowly, at just half or quarter the speed of that measured when the rats were awake and learning the maze. This slow neural recounting of the day's events is the best evidence we have to date explaining our own protracted experience of time in human REM sleep. This dramatic deceleration of neural time may be the reason we believe our dream life lasts far longer than our alarm clocks otherwise assert. An Infant Revelation Two Types of Sleep Though we have all determined that someone is asleep, or that we have been asleep, the gold standard scientific verification of sleep requires the recording of signals, using electrodes, arising from three different regions. 1. Brainwave activity. 2. Eye movement activity. And 3. Muscle activity. Collectively, these signals are grouped together under the blanket term polysomnography, PSG, meaning a readout, graph, of sleep, somnus, that is made up of multiple signals, poly. It was using this collection of measures that arguably the most important discovery in all of sleep research was made in 1952 at the University of Chicago by Eugene Asarinsky, then a graduate student, and Professor Nathaniel Kleitman, famed for the Mammoth Cave experiment discussed in Chapter 2. Asarinsky had been carefully documenting the eye movement patterns of human infants during the day and night. He noticed that there were periods of sleep when the eyes would rapidly dart from side to side underneath their lids. Furthermore, these sleep phases were always accompanied by remarkably active brainwaves, almost identical to those observed from a brain that is wide awake. Sandwiching these earnest phases of active sleep were longer swathes of time when the eyes would calm and rest still. During these quiescent time periods, the brain waves would also become calm, slowly ticking up and down. As if that weren't strange enough, Asarinsky also observed that these two phases of slumber, sleep with eye movements, sleep with no eye movements, would repeat in a somewhat regular pattern throughout the night over and over and over again. With classic professorial skepticism, his mentor, Kleitman, wanted to see the results replicated before he would entertain their validity. With his propensity for including his nearest and dearest in his experimentation, he chose his infant daughter, Esther, for this investigation. The findings held up. At that moment, Kleitman and Asarinsky realized the profound discovery they had made. Humans don't just sleep, but cycle through two completely different types of sleep. They named these sleep stages based on their defining ocular features, non-rapid eye movement, or NREM sleep, and rapid eye movement, or REM sleep. Together with the assistance of another graduate student of Kleitman's at the time, William Dement, Kleitman and Asarinsky further demonstrated that REM sleep in which brain activity was almost identical to that when we are awake, was intimately connected to the experience we call dreaming, and is often described as dream sleep. NREM sleep received further dissection in the years thereafter, being subdivided into four separate stages, unimaginatively named NREM stages 1 to 4, 
we sleep researchers are a creative bunch, increasing in their depth. Stages 3 and 4 are therefore the deepest stages of NREM sleep you experience, with depth being defined as the increasing difficulty required to wake an individual out of NREM stages 3 and 4 compared with NREM stages 1 or 2. The Sleep Cycle In the years since Esther's slumber revelation, we have learned that the two stages of sleep, NREM and REM, play out in a recurring, push-pull battle for brain domination across the night. The cerebral war between the two is won and lost every 90 minutes, ruled first by NREM sleep, followed by the comeback of REM sleep. Footnote Different species have different NREM-REM cycle lengths. Most are shorter than that of humans. The functional purpose of the cycle length is another mystery of sleep. To date, the best predictor of NREM-REM sleep cycle length is the width of the brainstem, with those species possessing wider brainstems having longer cycle lengths. No sooner has the battle finished than it starts anew, replaying every 90 minutes. Tracing this remarkable roller coaster ebb and flow across the night reveals the quite beautiful cycling architecture of sleep, depicted in figure 8 in the accompanying PDF. On the vertical axis are the different brain states, with wake at the top, then REM sleep, and then the descending stages of NREM sleep, stages 1 to 4. On the horizontal axis is time of night, starting on the left at about 11 p.m., through until 7 a.m. on the right. The technical name for this graphic is a hypnogram, a sleep graph. Had I not added the vertical dashed lines demarcating each 90-minute cycle, you may have protested that you could not see a regularly repeating 90-minute pattern, at least not the one you were expecting from my description before. The cause is another peculiar feature of sleep, a lopsided profile of sleep stages. While it is true that we flip-flop back and forth between NREM and REM sleep throughout the night every 90 minutes, the ratio of NREM sleep to REM sleep within each 90-minute cycle changes dramatically across the night. In the first half of the night, the vast majority of our 90-minute cycles are consumed by deep NREM sleep and very little REM sleep, as can be seen in Cycle 1 of Figure 8. But as we transition through into the second half of the night, this seesaw balance shifts, with most of the time dominated by REM sleep, with little, if any, deep NREM sleep. Cycle 5 is a perfect example of this REM-rich type of sleep. Why did Mother Nature design this strange, complex equation of unfolding sleep stages? Why cycle between NREM and REM sleep over and over? Why not obtain all of the required NREM sleep first, followed by all of the necessary REM sleep second, or vice versa? If that's too much a gamble on the off chance that an animal only obtains a partial night of sleep at some point, then why not keep the ratio within each cycle the same, placing similar proportions of eggs in both baskets, as it were, rather than putting most of them in one early on, and then inverting that imbalance later in the night? Why vary it? It sounds like an exhausting amount of evolutionary hard work to have designed such a convoluted system and put it into biological action. We have no scientific consensus as to why our sleep, and that of all other mammals and birds, 
cycles in this repeatable but dramatically asymmetric pattern, though a number of theories exist. One theory I have offered is that the uneven back-and-forth interplay between NREM and REM sleep is necessary to elegantly remodel and update our neural circuits at night, and in doing so manage the finite storage space within the brain. Forced by the known storage capacity imposed by a set number of neurons and connections within their memory structures, our brains must find the sweet spot between retention of old information and leaving sufficient room for the new. Balancing this storage equation requires identifying which memories are fresh and salient, and which memories that currently exist are overlapping, redundant, or simply no longer relevant. As we will discover in Chapter 6, a key function of deep NREM sleep, which predominates early in the night, is to do the work of weeding out and removing unnecessary neural connections. In contrast, the dreaming stage of REM sleep, which prevails later in the night, plays a role in strengthening those connections. Combine these two, and we have at least one parsimonious explanation for why the two types of sleep cycle across the night and why those cycles are initially dominated by NREM sleep early on, with REM sleep reigning supreme in the second half of the night. Consider the creation of a piece of sculpture from a block of clay. It starts with placing a large amount of raw material onto a pedestal, that entire mass of stored autobiographical memories, new and old, offered up to sleep each night. Next comes an initial and extensive removal of superfluous matter, long stretches of NREM sleep, after which brief intensification of early details can be made, short REM periods. Following this first session, the culling hands return for a second round of deep excavation, another long NREM sleep phase, followed by a little more enhancing of some fine-grained structures that have emerged, slightly more REM sleep. After several more cycles of work, the balance of sculptural need has shifted. All core features have been hewn from the original mass of raw material. With only the important clay remaining, the work of the sculptor and the tools required must shift toward the goal of strengthening the elements and enhancing features of that which remains, a dominant need for the skills of REM sleep and little work remaining for NREM sleep. In this way, sleep may elegantly manage and solve our memory storage crisis with the general excavatory force of NREM sleep dominating early, after which the etching hand of REM sleep blends, interconnects, and adds details. Since life's experience is ever-changing, demanding that our memory catalogue be updated ad infinitum, our autobiographical sculpture of stored experience is never complete. As a result, the brain always requires a new bout of sleep and its varied stages each night, so as to auto-update our memory networks based on the events of the prior day. This account is one reason, of many, I suspect, explaining the cycling nature of NREM and REM sleep and the imbalance of their distribution across the night. A danger resides in this sleep profile, wherein NREM dominates early in the night, followed by a REM sleep dominance later in the morning, one of which most of the general public are unaware. Let's say that you go to bed this evening at midnight, but instead of waking up at 8am, getting a full eight hours of sleep, you must wake up at 6am, because of an early morning meeting, 
or because you are an athlete whose coach demands early morning practices? What percent of sleep will you lose? The logical answer is 25%, since waking up at 6am will lop off two hours of sleep from what would otherwise be a normal eight hours. But that's not entirely true. Since your brain desires most of its REM sleep in the last part of the night, which is to say the late morning hours, you will lose 60 to 90% of all your REM sleep, even though you are losing 25% of your total sleep time. It works both ways. If you wake up at 8 a.m., but don't go to bed until 2 a.m., then you lose a significant amount of deep NREM sleep, similar to an unbalanced diet in which you only eat carbohydrates and are left malnourished by the absence of protein, shortchanging the brain of either NREM or REM sleep, both of which serve critical, though different, brain and body functions, results in a myriad of physical and mental ill health, as we will see in later chapters. When it comes to sleep, there is no such thing as burning the candle at both ends, or even at one end, and getting away with it. How Your Brain Generates Sleep If I brought you into my sleep laboratory this evening at the University of California, Berkeley, placed electrodes on your head and face, and let you fall asleep, what would your sleeping brain waves look like? How different would those patterns of brain activity be to those you are experiencing right now as you listen to this sentence awake? How do these different electrical brain changes explain why you are conscious in one state, wake, non-conscious in another, NREM sleep, and delusionally conscious or dreaming in the third, REM sleep? Assuming you are a healthy young midlife adult, we will discuss sleep in childhood, old age and disease a little later. The three wavy lines in figure 9 in the accompanying PDF reflect the different types of electrical activity I would record from your brain. Each line represents 30 seconds of brainwave activity from these three different states. 1. Wakefulness. 2. Deep NREM sleep. And 3. REM sleep. Prior to bed, your waking brain activity is frenetic, meaning that the brainwaves are cycling, going up and down, perhaps 30 or 40 times per second, similar to a very fast drumbeat. This is termed fast-frequency brain activity. Moreover, there is no reliable pattern to these brainwaves. That is, the drumbeat is not only fast, but also erratic. If I asked you to predict the next few seconds of the activity, by tapping along to the beat, based on what came before, you would not be able to do so. The brain waves are really that asynchronous. Their drumbeat has no discernible rhythm. Even if I converted the brain waves into sound, which I have done in my laboratory in a sonification of sleep project and is eerie to behold, you would find it impossible to dance to. These are the electrical hallmarks of full wakefulness. Fast frequency, chaotic brainwave activity. You may have been expecting your general brainwave activity to look beautifully coherent and highly synchronous while awake, matching the ordered pattern of your, mostly, logical thought during waking consciousness. The contradictory electrical chaos is explained by the fact that different parts of your waking brain are processing different pieces of information at different moments in time and in different ways. When summed together, 
they produce what appears to be a discombobulated pattern of activity recorded by the electrodes placed on your head. As an analogy, consider a large football stadium filled with thousands of fans. Dangling over the middle of the stadium is a microphone. The individual people in the stadium represent individual brain cells, seated in different parts of the stadium, as they are clustered in different regions of the brain. The microphone is the electrode, sitting on top of the head, a recording device. Before the game starts, all the individuals in the stadium are speaking about different things at different times. They are not having the same conversation in sync. Instead, they are desynchronized in their individual discussions. As a result, the summed chatter that we pick up from the overhead microphone is chaotic, lacking a clear, unified voice. When an electrode is placed on a subject's head, as done in my laboratory, it is measuring the summed activity of all the neurons below the surface of the scalp as they process different streams of information sounds, sights, smells, feelings, emotions at different moments in time and in different underlying locations. Processing that much information of such varied kinds means that your brain waves are very fast, frenetic, and chaotic. Once settled into bed at my sleep laboratory, with lights out and perhaps a few tosses and turns here and there, you will successfully cast off from the shores of wakefulness into sleep. First, you will wade out into the shallows of light NREM sleep, stages 1 and 2. Thereafter, you will enter the deeper waters of stages 3 and 4 of NREM sleep, which are grouped together under the blanket term slow-wave sleep. Returning to the brainwave patterns of figure 9 in the PDF and focusing on the middle line, you can understand why. In deep, slow-wave sleep, the up-and-down tempo of your brainwave activity dramatically decelerates, perhaps just two to four waves per second, ten times slower than the fervent speed of brain activity you were expressing while awake. As remarkable, the slow waves of NREM are also far more synchronous and reliable than those of your waking brain activity. So reliable, in fact, that you could predict the next few bars of NREM sleep's electrical song based on those that came before. Were I to convert the deep rhythmic activity of your NREM sleep into sound and play it back to you in the morning, which we have also done for people in the same sonification of sleep project, you'd be able to find its rhythm and move in time, gently swaying to the slow, pulsing measure. But something else would become apparent as you listened and swayed to the throb of deep sleep brainwaves. Every now and then a new sound would be overlaid on top of the slow wave rhythm. It would be brief, lasting only a few seconds, but it would always occur on the downbeat of the slow wave cycle. You would perceive it as a quick trill of sound, not dissimilar to the strong rolling R in certain languages, such as Hindi or Spanish, or a very fast purr from a pleased cat. What you are hearing is a sleep spindle, a punchy burst of brainwave activity that often festoons the tail end of each individual slow wave. Sleep spindles occur during both the deep and the lighter stages of NREM sleep, even before the slow, powerful brain waves of deep sleep start to rise up and dominate. One of their many functions is to operate like nocturnal soldiers, who protect sleep by shielding the brain from external noises. 
The more powerful and frequent an individual's sleep spindles, the more resilient they are to external noises that would otherwise awaken the sleeper. Returning to the slow waves of deep sleep, we have also discovered something fascinating about their site of origin and how they sweep across the surface of the brain. Place your finger between your eyes, just above the bridge of your nose. Now slide it up your forehead about two inches. When you go to bed tonight, this is where most of your deep sleep brain waves will be generated, right in the middle of your frontal lobes. It is the epicenter, or hotspot, from which most of your deep, slow-wave sleep emerges. However, the waves of deep sleep do not radiate out in perfect circles. Instead, almost all of your deep sleep brain waves will travel in one direction, from the front of your brain to the back. They are like the sound waves emitted from a speaker, which predominantly travel in one direction, from the speaker outward. It is always louder in front of a speaker than behind it. And like a speaker broadcasting across a vast expanse, the slow waves that you generate tonight will gradually dissipate in strength as they make their journey to the back of the brain, without rebound or return. Back in the 1950s and 1960s, as scientists began measuring these slow brain waves, an understandable assumption was made. This leisurely, even lazy-looking electrical pace of brainwave activity must reflect a brain that is idle or even dormant. It was a reasonable hunch, considering that the deepest, slowest brainwaves of NREM sleep can resemble those we see in patients under anesthesia or even those in certain forms of coma. But this assumption was utterly wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. What you are actually experiencing during deep NREM sleep is one of the most epic displays of neural collaboration that we know of. Through an astonishing act of self-organization, many thousands of brain cells have all decided to unite and sing or fire in time. Every time I watch this stunning act of neural synchrony occurring at night in my own research laboratory, I am humbled. Sleep is truly an object of awe. Returning to the analogy of the microphone dangling above the football stadium, consider the game of sleep now in play. The crowd, those thousands of brain cells, has shifted from their individual chitter-chatter before the game, wakefulness, into a unified state, deep sleep. Their voices have joined in a lockstep, mantra-like chant, the chant of deep NREM sleep. All at once they exuberantly shout out, creating the tall spike of brainwave activity, and then fall silent for several seconds, producing the deep, protracted trough of the wave. From our stadium microphone, we pick up a clearly defined roar from the underlying crowd, followed by a long breath pause. Realizing that the rhythmic incantare of deep NREM slow-wave sleep was actually a highly active, meticulously coordinated state of cerebral unity, Scientists were forced to abandon any cursory notions of deep sleep as a state of semi-hibernation or dull stupor. Understanding this stunning electrical harmony, which ripples across the surface of your brain hundreds of times each night, also helps explain your loss of external consciousness. It starts below the surface of the brain, within the thalamus. Recall that as we fall asleep, the thalamus, the sensory gate, seated deep in the middle of the brain, blocks the transfer of perceptual signals, 
sound, sight, touch, etc., up to the top of the brain or the cortex. By severing perceptual ties with the outside world, not only do we lose our sense of consciousness, explaining why we do not dream in deep NREM sleep, nor do we keep explicit track of time. This also allows the cortex to relax into its default mode of functioning. That default mode is what we call deep slow-wave sleep. It is an active, deliberate, but highly synchronous state of brain activity. It is a near state of nocturnal cerebral meditation, though I should note that it is very different from the brainwave activity of waking meditative states. In this shamanistic state of deep NREM sleep can be found a veritable treasure trove of mental and physical benefits for your brain and body, respectively, a bounty that we will fully explore in Chapter 6. However, one brain benefit, the saving of memories, deserves further mention at this moment in our story, as it serves as an elegant example of what those deep, slow brainwaves are capable of. Have you ever taken a long road trip in your car and noticed that at some point in the journey, the FM radio stations you've been listening to begin dropping out in signal strength? In contrast, AM radio stations remain solid. Perhaps you've driven to a remote location and tried and failed to find a new FM radio station. Switch over to the AM band, however, and several broadcasting channels are still available. The explanation lies in the radio waves themselves, including the two different speeds of the FM and AM transmissions. FM uses faster frequency radio waves that go up and down many more times per second than AM radio waves. One advantage of FM radio waves is that they can carry higher, richer loads of information, and hence they sound better. But there's a big disadvantage. FM waves run out of steam quickly like a muscle-bound sprinter who can only cover short distances. AM broadcasts employ a much slower, longer radio wave, akin to a lean long-distance runner, while AM radio waves cannot match the muscular, dynamic quality of FM radio. The pedestrian pace of AM radio waves gives them the ability to cover vast distances with less fade. Longer-range broadcasts are therefore possible with the slow waves of AM radio allowing far-reaching communication between very distant geographic locations. As your brain shifts from the fast frequency activity of waking to the slower, more measured pattern of deep NREM sleep, the very same long-range communication advantage becomes possible. The steady, slow, synchronous waves that sweep across the brain during deep sleep open up communication possibilities between distant regions of the brain allowing them to collaboratively send and receive their different repositories of stored experience. In this regard, you can think of each individual slow wave of NREM sleep as a courier, able to carry packets of information between different anatomical brain centers. One benefit of these traveling deep sleep brain waves is a file transfer process. Each night, the long-range brain waves of deep sleep will move memory packets recent experiences, from a short-term storage site, which is fragile, to a more permanent and thus safer long-term storage location. We therefore consider waking brainwave activity as that principally concerned with the reception of the outside sensory world, 
while the state of deep NREM slow-wave sleep donates a state of inward reflection, one that fosters information transfer and the distillation of memories. If wakefulness is dominated by reception and NREM sleep by reflection, what then happens during REM sleep, the dreaming state? Returning to figure 9 in the PDF, the last line of electrical brainwave activity is that which I would observe coming from your brain in the sleep lab as you entered into REM sleep. Despite being asleep, the associated brainwave activity bears no resemblance to that of deep NREM slow-wave sleep, the middle line in the figure. Instead, REM sleep brain activity is an almost perfect replica of that seen during attentive, alert wakefulness, the top line in the figure. Indeed, recent MRI scanning studies have found that there are individual parts of the brain that are up to 30% more active during REM sleep than when we are awake. For these reasons, REM sleep has also been called paradoxical sleep, a brain that appears awake, yet a body that is clearly asleep. It is often impossible to distinguish REM sleep from wakefulness using just electrical brainwave activity. In REM sleep, there is a return of the same faster frequency brainwaves that are once again desynchronized. The many thousands of brain cells in your cortex that had previously unified in a slow, synchronized chat during deep NREM sleep have returned to frantically processing different informational pieces at different speeds and times in different brain regions, typical of wakefulness. But you're not awake. Rather, you are sound asleep. So what information is being processed, since it is certainly not information from the outside world at that time? As is the case when you are awake, the sensory gate of the thalamus once again swings open during REM sleep, but the nature of the gate is different. It is not sensations from the outside that are allowed to journey to the cortex during REM sleep. Rather, signals of emotions, motivations and memories, past and present, are all played out on the big screens of our visual, auditory and kinesthetic sensory cortices in the brain. Each and every night, REM sleep ushers you into a preposterous theatre wherein you are treated to a bizarre, highly associative carnival of autobiographical themes. When it comes to information processing, think of the wake state principally as reception, experiencing and constantly learning the world around you, NREM sleep as reflection, storing and strengthening those raw ingredients of new facts and skills, and REM sleep as integration, interconnecting these raw ingredients with each other, with all past experiences, and, in doing so, building an ever more accurate model of how the world works, including innovative insights and problem-solving abilities. Since the electrical brainwaves of REM sleep and wake are so similar, how can I tell which of the two you are experiencing as you lie in the bedroom of the sleep laboratory next to the control room? The telltale player in this regard is your body, specifically its muscles. Before putting you to bed in the sleep laboratory, we would have applied electrodes to your body, in addition to those we affixed to your head. While awake, even lying in bed and relaxed, there remains a degree of overall tension or tone in your muscles. This steady muscular hum is easily detected by the electrodes listening in on your body. As you pass into NREM sleep, 
some of that muscle tension disappears, but much remains. Gearing up for the leap into REM sleep, however, an impressive change occurs. Mere seconds before the dreaming phase begins, and for as long as that REM sleep period lasts, you are completely paralyzed. There is no tone in the voluntary muscles of your body, none whatsoever. If I were to quietly come into the room and gently lift up your body without waking you, it would be completely limp, like a rag doll. Rest assured that your involuntary muscles, those that control automatic operations such as breathing, continue to operate and maintain life during sleep, but all other muscles become lax. This feature termed atonia, an absence of tone, referring here to the muscles, is instigated by a powerful disabling signal that is transmitted down the full length of your spinal cord from your brainstem. Once put in place, the postural body muscles, such as the biceps of your arms and the quadriceps of your legs, lose all tension and strength. No longer will they respond to commands from your brain. You have, in effect, become an embodied prisoner, incarcerated by REM sleep. Fortunately, after serving the detention sentence of the REM sleep cycle, your body is freed from physical captivity as the REM sleep phase ends. This striking dissociation during the dreaming state, where the brain is highly active but the body is immobilized, allows sleep scientists to easily recognize, and therefore separate, REM sleep brainwaves from wakeful ones. Why did evolution decide to outlaw muscle activity during REM sleep? Because by eliminating muscle activity, you are prevented from acting out your dream experience. During REM sleep, there is a non-stop barrage of motor commands swirling around the brain, and they underlie the movement-rich experience of dreams. Wise, then, of Mother Nature, to have tailored a physiological straitjacket that forbids these fictional movements from becoming reality, especially considering that you've stopped consciously perceiving your surroundings. You can well imagine the calamitous upshot of falsely enacting a dream fight or a frantic sprint from an approaching dream foe while your eyes are closed and you have no comprehension of the world around you. It wouldn't take long before you quickly left the gene pool. The brain paralyzes the body so the mind can dream safely. How do we know these movement commands are actually occurring while someone dreams, beyond the individual simply waking up and telling you they were having a running dream or a fighting dream? The sad answer is that this paralysis mechanism can fail in some people, particularly later in life. Consequently, they convert these dream-related motor impulses into real-world physical actions. As we shall hear about in Chapter 11, the repercussions can be tragic. Finally, and not to be left out of the descriptive REM sleep picture, is the very reason for its name, corresponding rapid eye movements. Your eyes remain still in their sockets during deep NREM sleep. Footnote Oddly, during the transition from being awake into light stage 1 NREM sleep, the eyes will gently, and very, very slowly, start to roll in their sockets in synchrony like two ocular ballerinas pirouetting in perfect time with each other. It is a hallmark indication that the onset of sleep is inevitable. If you have a bed partner, try observing their eyelids the next time they are drifting off to sleep. 
you will see the closed lids of the eyes deforming as the eyeballs roll around underneath. Parenthetically, should you choose to complete this suggested observational experiment, be aware of the potential ramifications. There is perhaps little else more disquieting than aborting one's transition into sleep, opening your eyes, and finding your partner's face looming over yours, gaze affixed. Yet electrodes that we place above and below your eyes tell a very different ocular story when you begin to dream. The very same story that Kleitman and Asarinsky unearthed in 1952 when observing infant sleep. During REM sleep, there are phases when your eyeballs will jag with urgency, left to right, left to right, and so on. At first, scientists assumed that these rat-a-tat-tat eye movements corresponded to the tracking of visual experience in dreams. This is not true. Instead, the eye movements are intimately linked with the physiological creation of REM sleep and reflect something even more extraordinary than the passive apprehension of moving objects within dream space. This phenomenon is chronicled in detail in Chapter 9. Are we the only creatures that experience these varied stages of sleep? Do any other animals have REM sleep? Do they dream? Let us find out. Chapter 4 Ape Beds, Dinosaurs, and Napping with Half a Brain Who Sleeps, How Do We Sleep, and How Much? Who Sleeps? When did life start sleeping? Perhaps sleep emerged with the great apes. Maybe earlier, in reptiles or their aquatic antecedents, fish. Short of a time capsule, the best way to answer this question comes from studying sleep across different phyla of the animal kingdom, from the prehistoric to the evolutionarily recent. Investigations of this kind provide a powerful ability to peer far back in the historical record and estimate the moment when sleep first graced the planet. As the geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. For sleep, the illuminating answer turned out to be far earlier than anyone anticipated, and far more profound in ramification. Without exception, every animal species studied to date sleeps, or engages in something remarkably like it. This includes insects, such as flies, bees, cockroaches and scorpions, fish, from small perch to the largest sharks, amphibians such as frogs, and reptiles such as turtles, Komodo dragons, and chameleons. Footnote Proof of sleep in very small species, such as insects, in which recordings of electrical activity from the brain are impossible, is confirmed using the same set of behavioral features described in Chapter 3, illustrated by the example of Jessica. Immobility, reduced responsiveness to the outside world, easily reversible. A further criterion is that depriving the organism of what looks like sleep should result in an increased drive for more of it when you stop the annoying deprivation assault, reflecting sleep rebound. Footnote It was once thought that sharks did not sleep, in part because they never closed their eyes. Indeed, they do have clear active and passive phases that resemble wake and sleep. We now know that the reason they never close their eyes 
is because they have no eyelids. All have bona fide sleep. Ascend the evolutionary ladder further, and we find that all types of birds and mammals sleep, from shrews to parrots, kangaroos, polar bears, bats, and, of course, we humans. Sleep is universal. Even invertebrates, such as primordial mollusks and echinoderms, and even very primitive worms, enjoy periods of slumber. In these phases, affectionately termed lethargus, they, like humans, become unresponsive to external stimuli. And just as we fall asleep faster and sleep more soundly when sleep-deprived, so too do worms, defined by their degree of insensitivity to prods from experimenters. How old does this make sleep? Worms emerged during the Cambrian explosion, at least 500 million years ago. That is, worms, and sleep by association, predate all vertebrate life. This includes dinosaurs, which, by inference, are likely to have slept. Imagine diplodocuses and triceratopses all comfortably settling in for a night of full repose. Regress evolutionary time still further, and we have discovered that the very simplest forms of unicellular organisms that survive for periods exceeding 24 hours, such as bacteria, have active and passive phases that correspond to the light-dark cycle of our planet. It is a pattern that we now believe to be the precursor of our own circadian rhythm, and with it, wake and sleep. Many of the explanations for why we sleep circle around a common and perhaps erroneous idea. Sleep is the state we must enter in order to fix that which has been upset by wake. But what if we turn this argument on its head? What if sleep is so useful, so physiologically beneficial to every aspect of our being, that the real question is, why did life ever bother to wake up? Considering how biologically damaging the state of wakefulness can often be, that is the true evolutionary puzzle here, not sleep. Adopt this perspective, and we compose a very different theory. Sleep was the first state of life on this planet, and it was from sleep that wakefulness emerged. It may be a preposterous hypothesis, and one that nobody is taking seriously or exploring, but personally, I do not think it to be entirely unreasonable. Whichever of these two theories is true, what we know for certain is that sleep is of ancient origin. It appeared with the very earliest forms of planetary life. Like other rudimentary features, such as DNA, sleep has remained a common bond uniting every creature in the animal kingdom. A long-lasting commonality, yes. However, there are truly remarkable differences in sleep from one species to another. Four such differences, in fact. One of these things is not like the other. Elephants need half as much sleep as humans, requiring just four hours of slumber each day. Tigers and lions devour 15 hours of daily sleep. The brown bat outperforms all other mammals, being awake for just five hours each day, while sleeping 19 hours. Total amount of time is one of the most conspicuous differences in how organisms sleep. You'd imagine the reason for such clear-cut variation in sleep need is obvious. It isn't. None of the likely contenders, body size, prey-predator status, diurnal, nocturnal, 
usefully explains the difference in sleep need across species. Surely sleep time is at least similar within any one phylogenetic category, since they share much of their genetic code. It is certainly true for other basic traits within phyla, such as sensory capabilities, methods of reproduction, and even degree of intelligence. Yet sleep violates this reliable pattern. Squirrels and dagoos are part of the same family group, rodents, yet they could not be more dissimilar in sleep need. The former sleeps twice as long as the latter, 15.9 hours for the squirrel versus 7.7 .7 hours for the dagoo. Conversely, you can find near-identical sleep times in utterly different family groups. The humble guinea pig and the precocious baboon, for example, which are of markedly different phylogenetic orders, not to mention physical sizes, sleep precisely the same amount, 9.4 hours. So what does explain the difference in sleep time, and perhaps need, from species to species, or even within a genetically similar order? We're not entirely sure. The relationship between the size of the nervous system, the complexity of the nervous system, and total body mass appears to be a somewhat meaningful predictor, with increasing brain complexity relative to body size resulting in greater sleep amounts. While weak and not entirely consistent, this relationship suggests that one evolutionary function that demands more sleep is the need to service an increasingly complex nervous system. As millennia unfolded and evolution crowned its current accomplishment with the genesis of the brain, the demand for sleep only increased, tending to the needs of this most precious of all physiological apparatus. Yet this is not the whole story, not by a good measure. Numerous species deviate wildly from the predictions made by this rule. For example, an opossum, which weighs almost the same as a rat, sleeps 50% longer clocking an average of 18 hours each day. The opossum is just one hour shy of the animal kingdom record for sleep amount currently held by the brown bat, who, as previously mentioned, racks up a whopping 19 hours of sleep each day. There was a moment in research history when scientists wondered if the measure of choice, total minutes of sleep, was the wrong way of looking at the question of why sleep varies so considerably across species. Instead, they suspected that assessing sleep quality rather than quantity time would shed some light on the mystery. That is, species with superior quality of sleep should be able to accomplish all they need in a shorter time, and vice versa. It was a great idea, with the exception that, if anything, we've discovered the opposite relationship. Those that sleep more have deeper, higher quality sleep. In truth, the way quality is commonly assessed in these investigations, degree of unresponsiveness to the outside world and the continuity of sleep, is probably a poor index of the real biological measure of sleep quality, one that we cannot yet obtain in all these species. When we can, our understanding of the relationship between sleep quantity and quality across the animal kingdom will likely explain what currently appears to be an incomprehensible map of sleep time differences. For now, our most accurate estimate of why different species need different sleep amounts involves a complex hybrid of factors, such as dietary type, omnivore, herbivore, carnivore, predator-prey balance within a habitat, the presence and nature of a social network, 
metabolic rate, and nervous system complexity. To me, this speaks to the fact that sleep has likely been shaped by numerous forces along the evolutionary path, and involves a delicate balancing act between meeting the demands of waking survival, for example, hunting prey, obtaining food, in as short a time as possible, minimizing energy expenditure and threat risk, serving the restorative physiological needs of an organism, for example, a higher metabolic rate requires greater cleanup efforts during sleep, and tending to the more general requirements of the organism's community. Nevertheless, even our most sophisticated predictive equations remain unable to explain far-flung outliers in the map of slumber, species that sleep much, for example bats, and those that sleep little, for example giraffes, which sleep for just four to five hours. Far from being a nuisance, I feel these anomalous species may hold some of the keys to unlocking the puzzle of sleep need. They remain a delightfully frustrating opportunity for those of us trying to crack the code of sleep across the animal kingdom, and within that code, perhaps as yet undiscovered benefits of sleep we never thought possible. To dream or not to dream Another remarkable difference in sleep across species is composition. Not all species experience all stages of sleep. Every species in which we can measure sleep stages experiences NREM sleep, the non-dreaming stage. However, insects, amphibians, fish, and most reptiles show no clear signs of REM sleep, the type associated with dreaming in humans. Only birds and mammals, which appeared later in the evolutionary timeline of the animal kingdom, have full-blown REM sleep. It suggests that dream, REM sleep, is the new kid on the evolutionary block. REM sleep seems to have emerged to support functions that NREM sleep alone could not accomplish, or that REM sleep was more efficient at accomplishing. Yet as with so many things in sleep, there is another anomaly. I said that all mammals have REM sleep, but debates around cetaceans or aquatic mammals. Certain of these ocean-faring species such as dolphins and killer whales, buck the REM sleep trend in mammals. They don't have any. Although there is one case in 1969 suggesting that a pilot whale was in REM sleep for six minutes, most of our assessments to date have not discovered REM sleep, or at least what many sleep scientists would believe to be true REM sleep, in aquatic mammals. From one perspective, this makes sense. When an organism enters REM sleep, the brain paralyzes the body, turning it limp and immobile. Swimming is vital for aquatic mammals, since they must surface to breathe. If full paralysis was to take hold during sleep, they could not swim and would drown. The mystery deepens when we consider pinnipeds, one of my all-time favorite words, from the Latin derivatives pinna, fin, and pedis, foot, such as fur seals. Partially aquatic mammals, they split their time between land and sea. When on land, they have both NREM sleep and REM sleep, just like humans and all other terrestrial mammals and birds. But when they enter the ocean, they stop having REM sleep almost entirely. Seals in the ocean will sample but a soupçon of the stuff, racking up just 5-10% to of the REM sleep amounts they would normally enjoy when on land. Up to two weeks of ocean-bound time have been documented without any observable REM sleep in seals, 
who survive in such times on a snooze diet of NREM sleep. These anomalies do not necessarily challenge the usefulness of REM sleep. Without doubt, REM sleep and even dreaming appears to be highly useful and adaptive in those species that have it, as we shall see in part three of the book. That REM sleep returns when these animals return to land, rather than being done away with entirely, affirms this. It is simply that REM sleep does not appear to be feasible or needed by aquatic mammals when in the ocean. During that time, we assume they make do with lowly NREM sleep, which for dolphins and whales may always be the case. Personally, I don't believe aquatic mammals, even cetaceans like dolphins and whales, have a total absence of REM sleep, though several of my scientific colleagues will tell you I'm wrong. Instead, I think the form of REM sleep these mammals obtain in the ocean is somewhat different and harder to detect, be it brief in nature, occurring at times when we have not been able to observe it, or expressed in ways or hiding in parts of the brain that we have not yet been able to measure. In defense of my contrarian point of view, I note that it was once believed that egg-laying mammals, monotremes, such as the spiny anteater and the duck-billed platypus, did not have REM sleep. It turned out that they do, or at least a version of it. The outer surface of their brain, the cortex, from which most scientists measure sleeping brain waves, does not exhibit the choppy, chaotic characteristics of REM sleep activity. But when scientists looked a little deeper, beautiful bursts of REM sleep electrical brainwave activity were found at the base of the brain, waves that are a perfect match for those seen in all other mammals. If anything, the duck-billed platypus generates more of this kind of electrical REM sleep activity than any other mammal. So they did have REM sleep after all, or at least a beta version of it, first rolled out in these more evolutionary ancient mammals. A fully operational, whole-brain version of REM sleep appears to have been introduced in more developed mammals that later evolved. I believe a similar story of atypical but nevertheless present REM sleep will ultimately be observed in dolphins and whales and seals when in the ocean. After all, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. More intriguing than the poverty of REM sleep in this aquatic corner of the mammalian kingdom is the fact that birds and mammals evolved separately. REM sleep may therefore have been birthed twice in the course of evolution, once for birds and once for mammals. A common evolutionary pressure may still have created REM sleep in both, in the same way that eyes have evolved separately and independently numerous times across different phyla throughout evolution for the common purpose of visual perception. When a theme repeats in evolution, and independently across unrelated lineages, it often signals a fundamental need. However, a very recent report has suggested that a protoform of REM sleep exists in an Australian lizard, which, in terms of the evolutionary timeline, predates the emergence of birds and mammals. If this finding is replicated, it would suggest that the original seed of REM sleep was present at least 100 million years earlier than our original estimates. This common seed in certain reptiles may have then germinated into the full form of REM sleep we now see in birds and mammals, including humans. Regardless of when true REM sleep emerged in evolution, we are fast discovering why REM sleep dreaming came into being, 
what vital needs it supports in the warm-blooded world of birds and mammals. For example, cardiovascular health, emotional restoration, memory association, creativity, body temperature regulation, and whether other species dream. As we will later discuss, it seems they do. Setting aside the issue of whether all mammals have REM sleep, an uncontested fact is this. NREM sleep was first to appear in evolution. It is the original form that sleep took when stepping out from behind evolution's creative curtain, a true pioneer. This seniority leads to another intriguing question, and one that I get asked in almost every public lecture I give. Which type of sleep, NREM or REM sleep, is more important? Which do we really need? There are many ways you can define importance or need, and thus numerous ways of answering the question. But perhaps the simplest recipe is to take an organism that has both sleep types, bird or mammal, and keep it awake all night and throughout the subsequent day. NREM and REM sleep are thus similarly removed, creating the conditions of equivalent hunger for each sleep stage. The question is, which type of sleep will the brain feast on? when you offer it the chance to consume both during a recovery night. NREM and REM sleep in equal proportions, or more of one than the other, suggesting greater importance of the sleep stage that dominates. This experiment has now been performed many times on numerous species of birds and mammals, humans included. There are two clear outcomes. First, and of little surprise, sleep duration is far longer on the recovery night. 10 or even 12 hours in humans, than during a standard night without prior deprivation, 8 hours for us. Responding to the debt, we are essentially trying to sleep it off, the technical term for which is a sleep rebound. Second, NREM sleep rebounds harder. The brain will consume a far larger portion of deep NREM sleep than of REM sleep on the first night after total sleep deprivation expressing a lopsided hunger. Despite both sleep types being on offer at the finger buffet of recovery sleep, the brain opts to heap much more deep NREM sleep onto its plate. In the battle of importance, NREM sleep therefore wins. Or does it? Not quite. Should you keep recording sleep across a second, third and even fourth recovery night, there's a reversal. Now REM sleep becomes the primary dish of choice, with each returning visit to the recovery buffet table, with a side of NREM sleep added. Both sleep stages are therefore essential. We try to recover one, NREM, a little sooner than the other, REM, but make no mistake, the brain will attempt to recoup both, trying to salvage some of the losses incurred. This is the end of the disc. The audiobook continues on the next disc.